This is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today is the continuation of our conversation on Silicon Valley sexism. So if you haven't already, make sure to check out part one of the episode that came out just two days ago. And in that episode, you'll hear just how big of an issue sexism in Silicon Valley and tech fields writ large really are, including the startling fact that women are leaving the world of tech at twice the rate that their male counterparts are. You'll learn more about the brave women and whistleblowers who are calling out tech companies on their gender discrimination and harassment issues, including Ellen Pau and Susan Fowler at Uber. You'll also hear some of the underlying reasons behind tech, which is really a very young industry, is still struggling so obviously with gender inclusion, things like the genius fallacy and the meritocracy paradox. So if you haven't heard that episode yet, go back there, listen to it. It's full of good stuff. So today we want to take it back a second and ask the question that is on some people's minds, which is why does diversity in tech even matter? Only 19% of students in computer science programs are women. So should we really even care that a quarter of U.S. computing and mathematics jobs, a fraction that has actually slightly fallen over the past 15 years, are held by women? Some might even argue that we don't even really need culture change, that those kinds of cultural changes are actually, quote, social engineering run amok. Some people might even say, Women aren't showing up more in tech spaces because they're not really born being good at tech, or that's not something that women want to be doing. And by some people, Bridget, we of course are talking about Google Guy, the guy behind the viral manifesto released at Google last month that we absolutely have to talk about. I almost don't want to say his name. We're not. We're calling him Google Guy. <laughs> That's his name forever and ever. <laughs> exactly. He's earned it. And before we continue, I just have to also go on the record as saying Google has paid me money in the past for my gender-inclusive training, public speaking for their women at Google. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not sorry about it. <laughs> so let's talk about what went down at Google last month, because it really did send shockwaves through an already dramatic conversation. So basically, Google Guy, as we're now calling him, wrote this, I guess you would call it a manifesto, if that's the way you want to call it. That's what he called it. That is, yeah. Basically, his argument is that places like Google are creating, quote, safe spaces, and those spaces are actually discriminating to promote women and minorities over white men. The poor, poor, disenfranchised white men. And this is not a new argument. It is not a new argument. What I think is interesting is how you can tell from the, from his manifesto, he thinks it's the newest thing. Like, he's blowing the lid right off this thing. These things, he's like at the forefront of this. He might think he's a genius. He might be caught up in the genius fallacy. (laughs) If I, if I knew this guy in real life, I might say that. Yeah. And this is the same argument that's been brought to affirmative action in the past when it comes to college acceptance. This idea that, you know, Anything beyond nature, right? What's naturally occurring in the marketplace when it comes to achievement, hiring, promotion is what we should value. And we shouldn't look at how nurture might be impeding not only the pipeline of women in tech, but also the promotion of women in tech. Basically, what he's saying is anything that we do to mess with what's naturally occurring to, I don't know, advance women and minorities in tech because there are benefits of diversity in tech is social engineering and it's bad. 
Right. And his, his, what I think is so messed up about that argument is it totally overlooks the fact that we live in a gosh dang society, right? Like the people are not competing with each other in a vacuum where no other kinds of factors, underlying factors are at play. We're in a society and in the world that he describes, all things are equal. We're in a vacuum. We don't live in a society. Everyone is the same. And that's, I mean, hello, it's not the case. And what's shocking is if you look at how people treat babies, I'm talking 15-month-old boys versus 15-month-old girls, a viral video came out recently that I stumbled across on Facebook that show when an adult is playing with a little baby who they think is a girl, they're more likely to give that little baby toys that are dolls, toys like soft plushy toys, not the kind of toys like Connects and Legos and things that maybe not a 15-month-old should be playing with Legos, but you get the idea. Not the things that help baby brains develop spatial awareness, the kinds of skills that set them up to kick butt in tech. So if you're saying that it's pure nature and nurture has nothing to do with men's proclivity for the sciences and STEM fields, not just advancement, we can like which we can talk about bias and hiring and promotion too, then I think you're missing the bigger, more influential point, which is nurture and how nurture and how the society we live in sets up winners and losers. Totally. And I think they've even done studies that show that we start treating people differently along the lines of gender in the womb, that that stuff's happening already. You know, and I I think this idea that all kinds of people have been treated the same throughout life is just bunk and his manifesto doesn't even acknowledge that. Exactly. And here's the thing. He was very careful to appear reasonable. That's my, of all the things that are my least favorite thing about Google Guy, that's the one I hate the most. I'm trying to not, like, someone, I, he reminds me so much of someone I know, so I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to, like, go off on this guy who I hate as a proxy for him, but screw it, I'm doing it anyway. Basically, it's this idea that, oh, if I appear very rational and like, date, like, I'm just presenting the data in a very rational way, don't attack me, these are the facts. But he doesn't actually rely on a lot of facts, and he spews a lot of really racist, messed up stuff with no grounding in facts that are actually the kinds of things that have been, you know, circulated on, you know, racist corners of the internet since forever. So these are not new ideas. They're actually, a lot of his points are not actually grounded by data or facts, but he's pretending as if they are in this attempt to seem really reasonable and, And you know, measured. Exactly. He disguises what is basically a racist, misogynistic rant in this really approachable packaging of, I just want to raise the alarm bell on this. I just don't want to be a part of a culture at Google where, you know, women and minorities' voices are louder and the only right voice is here, and that's concerning to me, and I should be able to dissent without being eaten alive. And he makes a very reasonable argument on that, and then he goes in to say a very unreasonable argument. Something I think is so interesting is that, again, even though he clearly thinks this is new ground, that rhetorical device is so common. It even has a name where they call it just asking questions. I'm just asking questions. I'm just presenting data. <laughs> I'm just asking questions. I just want to lift this. And it's a, a really smarmy rhetorical device to seem measured and approachable when you're anything but. Exactly. And it worked because there are lots of corners of the Internet where maybe some of our MGTOW friends from our MGTOW episode uh, hang out, where there are a ton of men who found solace and are cheering Google Guy on for for bravely speaking out against PC culture. And it just really reminds me of some of these white supremacists who are trying to seem reasonable and approachable and 
just asking questions. That's a perfect way to put it. Fortunately for all of us, Cynthia Lee at Vox Media wrote the best piece in response to Google Guy's memo, and it's titled, I'm a woman in computer science. Let me lady-splain the Google memo to you. <laughs> I love that title. Y'all, if you've ever heard the phrase, an epic drag, this I don't use it for Vox articles a lot, but this Vox article is an epic drag. I love it. I love it. So she goes on, if I could just read the whole article on this podcast, I would. I think it would be a mic drop, but clearly we don't have that kind of time. What she does so brilliantly here is she explains to the public why there was such a vociferous backlash against Google Guy. Because Google Guy's memo created so much anger and indignation that it almost turned out to look like he was the poor victim here. Because he did get canned by Google. And so when he lost his job... Everyone said, this is what happens in PC culture, run amok. This is what happens when you dare to dissent with the progressive social engineers over at Google. You know, a poor white guy just lost his job for speaking out on behalf of all of us. Can I just say, if there's one phrase I would love to never hear again, it's PC culture, run amok. I know. I would love to just... Throw that in the dustbin of history. We should do an episode on PC. Oh, God. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? But that's a whole other tangent. So she beautifully explains why a memo that seems so benign and polite and like a just asking questions memo, why there was such a backlash. And she goes point by point, starting with a really important one, fatigue. Women are tired, (laughs) y'all. To be a woman in tech is to know the thrill of participating in one of the most transformative revolutions humankind has ever known, to experience the crystalline satisfaction of finding an elegant solution to an algorithmic challenge, to want to throw the monitor out the window in frustration with a bug, and later to do a happy dance in a chair while finally fixing it. To be a woman in tech is also to always and forever be faced with skepticism that I do and feel all those things authentically enough to truly belong. There is always a jury, and it is always still out. Imagine if this was how you felt in work, that you had all these ups and downs, and you always felt like you were an interloper. You always felt like your colleagues were looking at you like you didn't quite belong. You faced this day in and day out, a lot of times silently. And then someone comes along and says, you know who really has it bad? Me, a white guy. I would be infuriated. Yeah, and also she points to this, you know, what, People of color have been dealing with for a long time, thankfully there's a term for it now, racial battle fatigue, which is dealing with microaggressions at work all the time. Whether they are a seemingly innocuous offhand comment about you being really smart for a woman of color or really articulate for being a black man, you're just like, what? You know, they don't even have to say the last part of the sentence for you to put it together. Or being told, this is the worst, you're not like most girls, Bridget. You're so much cooler and smarter and better at science and technology than most girls. You're like, that is not a compliment. Please don't, like, drop that kind of misogyny packaged in a gift box to me, please. I can see how that is meant to be flattering, but it's so misogynistic. Totally. Totally. She also goes on to acknowledge and really call out Google Guy for the fact that his memo treats women at Google as though they are average. He almost talks about women's lack of leadership and rise and retention at Google as though he's talking about the average woman. And yes, we know that only 20% of computer science majors are women, but we also know that the vast majority of women at Google are not being polled 
from just the average pool of all women who study all things. So his use of data, just like you mentioned earlier, Bridget, is very misleading because the data he references are about the average woman's proclivity for tech. She goes on to say, what do averages have to do with hiring practices at a company that famously hires fewer than 1% of applicants in the name of the rational empiricism and quantitative rigor that the manifesto holds so dear, shouldn't we insist that it only cite studies that specifically speak to the tales of, dis- of the distribution to the actual pool of women that Google draws from? So basically what she's saying here is that Google does not hire a lot of people. It specifically does not hire a lot of women. If you are a woman who ends up working at Google, you are exceptional. You are, you are not average. I almost quoted Beyonce and swore, but we're not talking about, you know, the line I'm going for. I do. You're not average. You are exceptional. And this idea that he's dealing with all these average women in tech who are bringing down the company, who are these pity hires because of their gender, is BS. Cynthia goes on to really hammer this point home by pointing out that women currently make up about 30% of computer science majors at Stanford, which is one of the key sources of Google's elite workforce, right? Stanford's right around the corner. It's in Silicon Valley, basically. They get a lot of recruits from Stanford. But... That 30% turns into just 19% when you look at the percentage of Google's workforce that's female. So, quote, even if we imagine for a moment that the manifesto is correct and that there is some biological ceiling on the percentage of women who will be suited to work at Google, less than 50% of their workforce, isn't it the case that Google and tech generally is almost certainly not yet hitting that ceiling? In other words, it is clear that we are still operating in an environment where it is very much more likely that women who are biologically able to work in tech are chased away from tech by sociological and other factors than that biologically unsuited women are somehow brought in by overzealous diversity programs. And something else I want to lift up here is that as a woman of color, a common idea is that to get in the same place as a white man, you have to be twice as good. And I think the women that he works with are probably better than he is. They probably, to get where they are, they had to be twice as good all the time. And so if he's looking around and just assuming, of course, I'm better than all of these women and they are just, you know, they're, they're pity hires who, you know, yeah. were tokens or whatever. That is so wrong because any woman who works in a male-dominated field knows to be taken seriously. you got to be twice as good to go half as far. Right, to be in that 1% of exactly. people that Google actually hires. My other huge beef with his manifesto that Cynthia points out is that this is not philosophy class, okay? This is not an innocuous, just-asking-questions conversation over the theory behind nature versus nurture when it comes to women in deck, there is a very clear intent behind his very organized memo. Cynthia goes on to write, quote, if his proposals were adopted, it wouldn't be some abstract concept of average that doesn't get a scholarship. It would be an actual individual woman. It would be an actual female Googler who doesn't get to attend the Grace Hopper conference, which provides many women with their first experience of being in a majority woman tech conference space. So she basically is making this point that this is 
seemingly innocuous in how he wrote it, and his tone was going for benign, right? He was going for harmless. There is nothing harmless about the proposals he was suggesting. He was literally suggesting taking away resources from his female colleagues, opportunities from his female colleagues, because he wasn't invited to those opportunities, like the Grace Hopper conference. Completely. And I think that you you really nailed it. This is not some abstract person. These are real people who would have real things, concrete opportunities taken away from them. And I just think, I can't even imagine writing a memo at work where I say, oh, I don't think Bobby in right. accounting should get X, Y, we shouldn't be taking X, Y, Z away from Bobby. Exactly. And then being like, whoa, why is Bobby so upset? It's like, yeah, because that's screwed up. Exactly. So he's trying to not name names and yet take resources away from his colleagues. I also think it's worth noting, and I'm curious if people who were big supporters of him know this, how he deals with race. So she writes, It's striking to me that the manifesto author repeatedly lists race alongside gender when listing programs and preferences he thinks should be done away with. But unlike gender, he never purports to have any scientific backing for this. This omission is telling. And so basically he's saying, well, we all know People of color are biologically worse at this. And she says, would defenders of the memo still be comfortable if the author had casually summarized race and IQ studies to argue that purported biological differences and not discrimination or unequal access to education explain Google's shortage of African-American programmers? Basically, he's just sort of casually, like, everyone just knows that blacks aren't good programmers. They're just biologically not good at this. That's basically the point he's making for women. Right. If he made that point, I mean, it's baffling, and it's so messed up, and I don't see how people can't look at this and how this holds up under that kind of scrutiny. But I will say that, again, in these, in these pockets of the internet, that is not a, that is a theory that would fly. People really do get very invested in this idea of certain people being biologically good at things and other people being biologically bad at them. Do you, are you saying that that argument, the racist one, would fly? I think for a lot of people, yeah. if presented with that, they yeah. would say, sure, of course blacks yeah. can't understand geometry. Right. They, they would they would really right. think that. And I think it's telling that you don't have to go to corners of the internet to find people who would agree to that conclusion on gender. Correct. Because it's definitely less even plausible to say that kind of an argument out loud about race. Right. But when or, you say it about women, it's like, yeah, this this guy seems like he's yeah, making sense you, to me. If, if you made that argument about race, right. people would be like, well, saying that blacks are innately worse at computer science is racist and messed up. Right. But you can kind of make that argument about women, and it's kind of fine, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's not bizarre, it's infuriating. Yes, it's, I'm like livid right now. <laughs> Just thinking about I know, the hand gestures and the facial expressions that are happening in the studio right now. I wish everyone could see them. But here's something to set us off here for a second. Her conclusion in this piece, Cynthia Lee's piece, is really perfect in my opinion. She writes, in the end, focusing the conversation on the minutia of the scientific claims in the manifesto is a red herring. Regardless of whether biological differences exist, there's no shortage of glaring evidence in individual stories and in scientific studies that women in tech experience bias and a general lack of a welcoming environment, as do underrepresented minorities. Until these problems are resolved, our focus should be on remedying that injustice. After that work is complete, we can reassess whether small effect size biological components have anything to do with lingering imbalances. And that's that's why I love her response so much. It's because I've no matter what this guy says, 
Obviously, the data is very, very clear, both in personal stories and in hard numbers. There's a problem with women and minorities in tech. And to say that there isn't is just, is just turning a blind eye to this data. It's just, it's exactly. not being fact-based. As he, and even he, and he's doing that while pretending to be super fact-based. I know. Oh. I know. I just, I know, I know, I know, I don't know this guy, but I know this guy. You I know, know what you, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah, I'm raising my fist at the air like I want to pull an Abe Simpson and yell at a cloud about this. <laughs> Old man yells at cloud. Yes. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break, but we, I just want to hammer home before we do that this is the world's most profitable industry. So for all their proclaimed data-drivenness, an argument like the one that Google guy made doesn't seem to give a hoot <laughs> that better decisions are made with more diverse teams, that companies' outcomes and bottom-line results tend to improve with more diverse teams. And this is an argument that even Sheryl Sandberg, the whitest, wealthiest voice in feminism, really made to her fellow Silicon Valley co-workers, which is it's just good business to have gender inclusion and diversity on your docket for corporate priorities. So in this industry, especially the one that's shaping the future we are all going to live in, it's critically important that we actually rectify these injustices and focus on what can be done on the cultural level. And I think we should get into why this is such a big deal after this quick break. And we're back, and we were talking about why it's so critically, critically important that tech get its act together. Now, we know that tech is the most profitable industry out there, but it's also the industry that's poised to solve some of our biggest, most critical life challenges. This is an industry that, if we, if they really put their mind to it, they could possibly really get somewhere when you think about climate change, immigration, all of these things that are critically important life or death things, tech could probably solve if they put their mind to it. But if they don't figure out that what makes for good tech solutions are inclusive teams and inclusive hiring practices, they'll never get there. And I think what really frustrates me is that they don't see the way this is costing them money and costing them efficiency. The data is so clear that when you have inclusive teams and diverse teams, you're better at your job. And it almost feels like they are prioritizing being a bro-y frat house over making actual effective cost-driven choices. I completely agree. And I am still an unbridled optimist on this. Even though all the data and these stories are depressing as hell, the reason I'm optimistic is because when we say they don't seem to care, that minority in tech is being fired, like Google guy. That, I mean, not all of them, right? But there are majorly well-funded efforts to rectify these injustices. And I want to dive into some of the imperfect solutions that are being worked on. But the good news is that there are solutions being put forth. There's a lot of money being invested in increasing diversity and inclusion at companies like Google. Um so let's let's talk a little bit about how like what are the multi-phase interventions that tech companies can make to really close the gap when it comes to women in tech. Well, I think the first one is probably filling the STEM pipeline. Um, from this Atlantic article that we keep quoting from because it's amazing and you should definitely read it, 
More than half of college and university students are women, and the percentage of women entering many STEM fields has risen. Computer science is a glaring exception. The percentage of female computer and information science majors peaked in 1984 at about 37%. It has declined more or less steadily ever since. Today it stands at 18%. Which is shocking because computer science was way less sexy in 1984. Oh, it wasn't sexy at all. You know what I'm talking about? What's the opposite? it, what's the opposite of sexy? Boxy. It was boxy. <laughs> like, also, I'm thinking about the design of computers were similarly, right? Yeah. So, like, now tech is so sexy. Like, you can solve the biggest world's problems. It's such a financially uh, attractive industry if you want to not only have social impact but also get rich along the way. And somehow that's attracted more men to the table than women. I think that's very telling. But I also think it's interesting when you add race to that dynamic. As a black woman who worked for a while in a tech sector, I think... Adding that extra layer of intersectionality is so critically important. So I don't want to say that, you know, black women and women of color are not there, uh, but we are there. But I think so much more can be done to sort of bring us into the pipeline. You really have to see it to be it. So I think what it really comes down to is creating these inclusive and diverse workplace cultures in ways that are baked into the framework, not just sort of tacked in after the fact. Um, When I was working in Silicon Valley, I worked for an organization called Medium. Uh, Shout out to Medium, which I still know and love and use to this day. Um, But something I was really uh, struck by with my employment there was how good HR practices were sort of baked into the framework very early on. This didn't feel like something that you just got a, you know, five-minute lecture about after you've been hired. It was clear that they had made really, really critical steps to have that be part of what made the organization the organization. And one of the things I really liked about Medium was that even when they were hiring for hard tech jobs like engineer or, you know, um, coders and things like that, they would have really inclusive and diverse hiring teams who were interviewing people. So even though, you know, I don't have a hard, a hard tech background, um, I don't have a computer science degree, I would sometimes be on a team that was interviewing someone for a hard tech job. And so, you know, I don't know anything about software engineering, but I know what makes someone a good team player. I know what makes someone um, a good person to have on a team. And I, my, I felt like my input as a non-hard skills person, as a woman of color, as someone who really advocates for soft skills, that was taken just as seriously as the head software senior engineer who was sort of saying like, oh, this guy can code this way or that way. And I think that was really a good way of making sure that we had people who just knew how to not be jerks, that, that that was an important part of how we hired. And I really, I, I think that that really made a difference in terms of the climate at Medium, that whereas other tech companies are sort of known for these hiring these like special snowflake hard skills folks who, you know, can be awful to their coworkers, can be awful to women and people of color, can make workspaces really tough to show up in. Yeah. We weeded them out. I'll never forget one of our... um engineers, he didn't hire someone who was, you know, technically and on paper very, very good. And I think I was like, oh, why? This guy, you know, it seems like he had all the all the tech skills that you were looking for. And he said, well, one of the questions I asked him was, you know, why are you leaving your last job? And he said, because the t- it was too team focused, I wasn't getting enough of the credit. And he said, that was a huge red flag for me that he saw himself as it should be about me and how great I am because I am so great. And that he didn't understand all the different aspects of a team that go into be making your team effective. And he was like, no dice, no dice. That's amazing. Definitely. I mean, um, it's also so clear to me that one of the other big takeaways that I think other companies can gain from this is that it sounds to me like Medium had a very clear 
set of values that they brought into the hiring process. So it was clear what we value as a company. And you, you'll note it wasn't pure merit because that guy would have gotten through if yes. it was on merit alone. So you're, you're basically communicating what it looks like to have a hiring process that not only reflects the diversity of your company, which is beneficial for the person on the other side of the, the interview, but also integrates your core values as a company is equally important with the hard skills that you're hiring for. That's exactly. Awesome. And I think when you look at the data, more and more hiring managers want these kinds of soft skills. You could be the best, you know, have the best hard skills ever, but if you can't work on a team, if you can't have a conversation with your coworker without insulting them or being hostile and, you know, adding to a hostile work environment, you should, you have no business working someplace. Right. Like those skills are important too. Right. So, and it's beyond a meritocracy. Correct. It's beyond, I like that. Another company that I would say is doing this right is Pinterest, which has adopted an anti-bias checklist that they use in hiring. And that checklist basically helps those who are making hiring decisions prime against unconscious bias. It illuminates some of the ways in which unconscious bias can impede those decisions and helps counteract it systematically from the hiring process. Process. And what I like so much about that is that it under it kind of shows that they understand that these things can be sort of innate, and it takes a little bit of unlearning to work past them. Because I know myself, if I was a hiring manager for a project, and a woman who walked in who was a black woman with natural hair who went to Howard... I automatically would be like, oh, she's like me. I would have to fight through the bias because we all like people who are like us. And so I like that this, that, that, that technique, it accounts for the fact that this is innate and that it takes working through that to counteract it. It says, no, you have to take a step back and really analyze candidates along the lines of who they are, not just who you are and right. what you want to see. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it designs against it. Which exactly. I think is as foolproof and as foolproof as we can be as fallible human beings. One other company I want to shout out to because they've done this in a really creative and somewhat controversial way is actually Intel. Intel, which, you know, in tech terms is ancient, <laughs> right? Intel is like an ancient, been around for a long, long time. Um, they've actually been releasing their diversity numbers since 2000, so we de- like almost a decade earlier than Google and a lot of the others had to be pressured into it. What was interesting is that they have implemented hiring goals along diversity lines that are very public. So the entire company knows that we value diversity in hiring. That means we are going to put our money where our mouths are on this issue and incentivize financially having other members of the Intel team recruit diverse hires. Now, you might be thinking that the word quota is coming to mind. Here in the United States, we can't talk about hiring quotas, which here in the United States are illegal, although they're widely practiced in some European countries like Norway that, you know, has a real actual quota like, say, you know, 40% of a public company's board must be female. And that's worked quite well in Norway. But here in the U.S., they have hiring goals at Intel that, quote, to make its goals a little more, well, quota-like, Intel introduced money into the equation. In Intel's annual performance bonus plan, success in meeting diversity goals factors into whether the company gives employees an across-the-board bonus. So the amounts differ, but basically... If Intel as a whole meets its diversity goals in hiring, everyone gets paid. I love that so, so much. And I actually think that incentivizing it is great because 
It's possible to think that you're making a good faith effort to find candidate pools by just posting on a few listservs, but our networks tend to look like us. Like, my network looks like me. And so if you have a job opening and you just post it to your network, odds are you're going to get people who are like you. And if they post it to their networks, it's going to be people that are like them. If they're like you, it's just recreating this problem. But if you incentivize it financially... That incentivizes people getting creative and going outside their networks in a big way because they want that financial incentive, which I think is great. Now, we could talk literally for, I don't know, five different episodes worth of ways that your company can mitigate unconscious bias, can create cultures of inclusion, but that would be an HR podcast. (laughs) This would be a very different, much longer conversation. Fortunately, Ellen Pow, of all people, teamed up with a bunch of other senior women in tech to provide resources, very detailed resources, for how companies in tech, and I would argue across industries, can implement diverse, inclusive team cultures. You can find all of that info for free at Project Include. Dot org, where at the very top of their website, they start the whole conversation off with this value statement. They say, quote, true diversity means better teams, better financial returns, better companies, and a better, more innovative world. Project Include is our community for accelerating meaningful, enduring diversity and inclusion in the tech industry. And they have so many resources on everything from hiring, onboarding, compensation, providing feedback, training, training managers, leading as venture capitalists, measuring progress. I mean, the resources there are robust, and we would love to talk through every detail of them, but we don't have the time. The last thing I want to update folks on for this section on progress that's being made is actually some progress that not only can be made on the corporate front, but on the legal front. So until recently, the government has been largely absent in how these companies deal with their employees. Um, I feel like it's a theme of how we deal with things on this show that we always say, well, there can be a government or a policy solution to that. And luckily, we might be getting somewhere on that front. Earlier in August, California State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson introduced a bill that would amend the California Civil Code to tackle an ongoing pattern of sexist conduct in Silicon Valley, specifically sexual harassment in the venture capitalist and entrepreneur context. So I just love that, you know, even though these companies have been taking steps on their own, good policy choices can help sort of buttress what they're doing and and make this a more critical part of how they're addressing this problem. Exactly. So what this law, this proposed law will really do is strengthen the already existing civil code, California's Civil Code 51.9, which imposes liability for sexual harassment when there is a, quote, business, service, or professional relationship between the plaintiff and the defendant. Now, that language has been a little bit vague because it doesn't explicitly include venture capitalists into that equation. So in certain situations, the law being unclear there could be problematic. Um, what they would actually do is add relationships to that list of who's liable in a sexual harassment situation according to the civil code. Now, in addition to such relationships like teachers, landlords, attorneys, and physicians, the new proposed legislation adds venture capitalists to that list. And I think that's so important because we've acknowledged the ways that power dynamics can really impact these relationships when they get toxic and, and you know, sex, when sexual harassment is involved. 
it's fine. I feel like this is a case where the law is finally catching up with what is actually happening and recognizing the unequal power dynamics that are often at play here. Exactly. And it's part of the other ways that uh, that we need stronger legal protections for people like Ellen Pau, who whose case got thrown out because she wasn't able to legally prove sexual discrimination and harassment, despite everything we've learned about her story in this episode and really the last episode. There's also some ways that on the federal level, agencies like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the National Labor Relations Board, which is my favorite new thing to talk about. Yeah, it's come up a lot, actually. It has, yeah, as a new vehicle for organizing. And even the Securities and Exchange Commission have already began placing greater scrutiny on these non-disparagement agreements that oftentimes when employees are being hired in the tech sector are required to sign. Those non-disparagement agreements forbid them from whistleblowing, like Susan Fowler did, who, by the way, tweeted recently that she's still in debt due to the fact that she came out and publicly to make these statements. So she's experienced a net loss for being a whistleblower. So let's not pretend like the bravery and courage that comes with being Ellen Powell or Susan Fowler and daring to speak out and go public with your story doesn't come with a pretty hefty price tag legally, professionally, and personally. And I mean, just to, just to lift that up, it is so sad and such a shame that women have to make that kind of a tough choice, that they have to decide between financial stability and keeping their job and keeping their rent paid and speaking out about something that's really toxic that's happening to them at work. Exactly. So these arbitration clauses in employment agreements and non-disparagement agreements that are pretty common in hiring in the tech sector make it really hard for employees who are experiencing discrimination and even harassment to do anything other than settle quietly out of court. Or, like, have a whisper campaign where you're just telling your girlfriend over drinks, like, hey, this guy's a creep, watch out. Right. And again, I mean, it's important to note that if you don't, if you're not able to speak up about it, that's what happens. And it just becomes gossip and whispers, and it helps, it really doesn't help anybody to have that, to have this be happening in the dark. Exactly. When we come back from a quick break, we're going to talk through more ways that you as an individual woman, whether you are experiencing harassment in tech or not, can take action on this issue with us because like all of us, we just want to see women and men treated fairly and equally and given the equal opportunity to achieve our full potential in shaping the future. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. So we're back and we are talking through some of the ways that individuals can take action on making tech a safer space for all of us, right? That's really what we're, what we're about here. So the first couple things to consider, if you are in a position, whether it's tech or not, quite frankly, in which you are basically the, the victim of harassment, unwanted sexual advances, feeling fearful for your safety at work, or bearing witness to overt or not so overt discrimination based on race or gender when it comes to hiring and promotion at work, you've got some options. You've got some choices. And we mentioned earlier before the break, right, how difficult those choices can be. But do you want to speak to that at all, Bridget? Yeah, I mean, I just want to be real about it. It's, I feel like it's easy to say, you should be, I feel like this episode has been a lot of us being rah, rah, Ellen Powell, rah, rah, Susan Fowler. But if you don't have it in you to be an Ellen Powell or a Susan Fowler, that is understandable and okay, right? Like, 
We, it's, it's an unfair system that we should be expected to take on this burden. And I don't think it's fair to, you know, you shouldn't be single-handedly responsible for dismantling systems that we did not set up. Exactly. And so I think it's important to lift that up and acknowledge it, that as much as we're talking about how awesome what these women did and how they started these, these amazing dialogues, that's not for everybody. And you shouldn't feel like it's on you singularly to do that if it's not, you're not in a position to do it. Exactly. I'm thinking back to one of my favorite quotes from Audre Lorde, who says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. And the context that she brings to that conversation as a woman of color, as a queer woman of color, speaks to the fact that we are living amongst and within institutions of power and supremacy, I would go as far as to say, that weren't set up by us, uh, weren't set up by women, weren't set up by people of color, weren't set up by queer people. And so if you are tasked with dismantling that, that's an unfair fight. It's an unfair fight, and it's a fight you can't win. Exactly. There are things we can all do, but feeling the need to sacrifice yourself in order to tackle this system should not be one of them. And so I think it really comes back to small things that everyone can do, right? We can all acknowledge things like racial battle fatigue. We can all acknowledge the ways it plays out for gender, right? Like some of the women that wrote in working at Google saying, dealing with this stuff day in, day out, day in, day out. We can all understand that and acknowledge that it is real and has consequences. We can all do more to be less microaggressive. We can learn what that looks like. We can learn why it's not okay to say certain things to your to your colleagues, even if you mean it, you know, you don't mean it in a bad way. You don't mean to offend. You didn't know you were saying something wrong. Understanding why that intent is not that important and yeah. how it impacts your colleagues, we can all do that. And I think for more on that, especially, we, we dove into that on our episode about coming out at work, too, and how intent might be pure, but the outcome might be you're making your colleagues feel isolated and other, and that's not cool and that's not okay. And it, it contributes to racial battle fatigue and to the fatigue of being a woman in tech in a minority-majority environment. The other thing I want to think about, because I'm now a huge fan of the Labor Relations Board, (laughs) is going back to our Women in Labor episode, we highlighted some of the ways in which labor organizing looks really different nowadays. So if you are engaged in a whisper campaign with all the women in your office about a known harasser or a known uh, predatory coworker, with the help of the Labor Relations Board, you can actually team up with your coworkers to form a worksite committee, not a labor union, right, but sort of a modern temporary uh, substitute form of organizing, and then send a certified letter, petition, case, make your case, document your case as a collective that protects you from retaliatory consequences. So what I found really compelling in this New York Times article about the use of these worksite committees from back in 2015, the title of which is Workers Organize, but don't unionize to get protection under labor law. And really, you know, again, we're not attorneys, so talk to the Labor Relations Board and find out if your workplace is eligible and this is all compliant given your workplace situation. But if you team up with your colleagues to make a formal complaint and then they you experience retaliatory punishment, that retaliation is definitely illegal. But you have to have this on the books. You have to have the record of you putting forth a formal complaint as a collective. 
Right. I think it's so telling that it's all about avoiding retaliation because so many of the stories that we talked about today, that's such a big component of those stories is being retaliated against if they, if they speak up. Exactly. I think one of the key messages I want to close out on is we don't want to talk about how lousy women have it in tech so much that we gloss over the fact that tech is actually a very attractive industry and that there are plenty of women who are thriving in tech because in some ways, the worse off we talk about how much women have it, the more we highlight how bad women have it in tech, the more we perpetuate this myth that women are not welcome here. Yes, I I super want to close on, you know, I don't want to go too hard on how bad women have it in tech because I don't want to discourage other women from joining this field. I really found myself in the tech space, right? I loved working there. I made more money than I ever made at any job I ever had. Skills like impulsive decision-making and creative decision-making and taking risks, all of these things I'd struggled with during my career were finally being rewarded. And so I I loved my time there. Even in the Atlantic piece, the one we quoted time and time again about how lousy women have it and whose hyperbolic title really lives up to the dire situation that was described in that article, even that article goes on to say, quote, the dozens of women I interviewed for this article love working in tech. They love the problem-solving, camaraderie, the opportunity for swift advancement and high salaries, the fun of working with technology itself. They appreciate their many male colleagues who are considerate and supportive, yet all of them had stories about incidents that no matter how quick or glancing, chipped away at their sense of belonging and expertise. I would plus a hundred that. That sounds exactly like my experience. I loved the fast pace. I loved how fun it was. And I really did appreciate being in a space where even if they didn't always get it right, my male colleagues were supportive and vocally supportive. Exactly. And that's one of the other action items we should just, I want to highlight there, which is calling out microaggressions and making sure you're not contributing to microaggressions can be taken a step further, especially for our male listeners who can step in and use your male privilege to really call out misogyny on display at work. And when microaggressions do happen, to step in and try to rectify them. Yeah, and really just be an advocate. Be an advocate for the for women and, and people of color who are showing up in this space. So in case y'all don't know, women have historically always been at the forefront of technology. Um, Grace Hopper invented coding languages. Ada Lovelace invented the idea of algorithms way back in the 1800s. Ida B. Wells, one of my personal heroes, was a data scientist who really brought a data-driven approach to research and journalism around lynchings. And even now, finally, Hollywood seems to be taking up the mantle of retelling the story of women's involvement in tech. My personal favorite being Hidden Figures, which was, I think, my favorite movie that I've seen in the last year, probably multiple years, all about the, the data scientists and the computer scientists women, women of color, black women in particular, of NASA that helped put a man on the moon uh, for the United States. And even the imitation game, that movie that tells the story of the World War II code breakers at Bletchley Park, fails to really clarify in, in the most overt terms that they could that over two-thirds of those code breakers were women. So we need to, as a society, remember that, yes, even though tech is very male-dominated right now and is in many ways overtly hostile to women in tech, this is an industry for which women have always been instrumental 
from its very early groundings, especially here in U.S. history. Yeah, and don't let crappy dudes or pop culture <laughs> tell you otherwise, because exactly. we've always been here. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for tuning into this hefty double episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You. There is so much more to dive into when it comes to women in tech. We want to hear from you. Are you a woman in tech right now? What has your experience been like? What positive changes do you see on the horizon? And what work do we all still have to do to make sure tech is being as inclusive to women and minorities as it can be? Send us a tweet at momstuffpodcast. Find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And as always, send us your lovely emails at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. 